around and see the rows and rows of Christmas cards in the news agents that seem to be there as soon as Easter's gone, um, they're all just a little bit smaltzy for me. A lot of them just look like sentimental stuff uh, that is there. And the more religious ones, they focus on the Holy Family in the manger scene. And at a glance, you can tell those folks in that scene are somehow different. They seem unruffled. They're serene as they sit in the sanitised cattle shed. Halos neatly in place hovering over their heads. The animals lie quietly round the crib. Immaculately dressed shepherd and kings gather round. You know the scenes. It's kind of like surreal, out of the ordinary, and doesn't seem to be about us. I have a suspicion that um, we suspect that somehow that sentimentality will simplify life on earth and it'll become like the scenes we see on those cards. But as I read and reread the gospel accounts every year, I sense that something very different is at work and its disruption is at work. Christmas art. So I'm going back to some of the great artists back in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. Often depict Jesus' family as icons stamped in gold foil. And it pictures a very calm Mary receiving the news about her impending miraculous birth from the agenda as if she doesn't meet a beat. The story of the Annunciation that uh, Elizabeth just read to it is one of the most familiar stories in the Gospel. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. It links it back to our history. The virgin's name was Mary. I got a sneaky suspicion that Mary was actually out sweeping the courtyard of her house and she was hot and sweaty, just doing her daily chores, just living out her ordinary everyday life when she had a mind-boggling encounter, a heart-changing encounter with an angel. The angel greets her as Mary, calling her God's highly favoured one. He describes the divine plan for a miraculous conception. Mary expresses a question, so Gabriel explains in greater detail. Mary consents and the angel departs and it's all done, bang. Such a brief story. But we read that Mary was greatly troubled just by the angel's presence. Greatly troubled. And she pondered at his greeting. Highly favoured one. She started thinking, that's what that word means, she started thinking about it and meditating on it. I reckon there would have been a furrowed brow. We know from her question, how will this be since I am a virgin, that Mary recognised the bizarre nature of the angel's announcement. Pregnant by God? And we know from her last words to the angel that she actually agreed to God's plan. But the gospel writer leaves a heap out. 
And you know, if I, I'd love to have a dinner and invite Mary to it. I've got a few questions I'd like to ask her. Because I'm not sure it looks like it looks on the Christmas cards. Um, how did you tell your parents that you were pregnant? And, and what's more, how did they respond? See, she was probably 13 or 14 years old. And so you find the moment, um, Mum and Dad, I've got something I need to tell you. Um, I'm pregnant. I told you that Joseph was a no-good boy. You shouldn't have been messing around with... Mum and Dad, just calm down. It's got nothing to do with Joseph. We haven't slept together. Yes, we're betrothed to marriage, but we're being good little children and not having sex before marriage. Okay, Mum and Dad. Well, how are you pregnant then? Who was it? Which boy in the town? Um... God passed over me and I was pregnant. <laughs> How did Joseph and her handle it? How did they react amongst each other? <laughs> did anyone in the village believe your story, Mary, as you had to explain what was going on? And after Gabriel departed, did you doubt that he'd actually really visited you? That it was all some fanciful dream? Did you question your sanity? God darkening over you and you're, whoa, you're pregnant. Did you fear for your life? I've got a whole lot of questions I'd love. I reckon it'd be an interesting dinner. Well, what's the title that Gabriel gave to Mary? Highly favoured one. Now what comes to your mind when you think of highly favoured one? And then he gives this highly favoured one a task. And tradition tells us that Mary was probably 13 or 14 years old when the angel appeared to her. And we know that in first century Jewish culture a girl who became pregnant out of wedlock faced grave danger. At the very least she became an object of widespread scorn. At worst, she risked being stoned to death by the very villagers who raised her, according to the Jewish law. To say yes to the angel was to give herself over to scandal and ostracism. It was to put everything, her reputation, her marriage, her very life, on the line. And this task is the special honour God bestowed on his highly favoured one. It seems to me that God's favour is not the friendly thing that you and I believe it to be. It's not the God of the New Testament who equates divine favour with wealth, health, comfort, ease. That's just me getting it all wrong. Mary's favoured status led her straight from scandal to danger and then for her to watch the trauma of her son's crucifixion. Highly favoured one. God's call required her to trust an inner vision that flew in the face of everything her community expected of her. 
As the years passed and her son's enemies multiplied, Mary's yes demanded a great degree of courage and it makes me tremble when I think about it. Let's not deceive ourselves. It is no benign thing to be favoured of God, to be called by God. Today in Australia where we are used to teenage girls getting pregnant out of marriage, Mary's predicament has undoubtedly lost a whole lot of its force. We're so used to it. However, in that tightly knit Jewish community in the first century, the news that the angels brought would have been most unwelcome. It was very disruptive to the kind of life Mary expected to be living, carrying an illegitimate child in a conservative community. And Mary's response? I am the Lord's. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. She said yes to disruption, although I'm not sure she knew how much it looked like. Mary's yes to the angel seems immediate, doesn't it? It's kind of like, bang, she just did it. I'm your woman, let's get on with it, angel. Come on, let's get this job done. But you know, in the story, just in the physical words, there's a gap between her question of the angel, how would this be since I am a virgin, and her consent. There's a gap between that, that question and then when she says yes. That's not real clear, is it? Go to the web and have a look at it. It's an amazing painting that Sandro Botticelli made called, uh, of the Annunciation scene called the Sestello. Annunciation. I actually, just so you know, often use art. This one's from uh, 1490. Often use art like this that these painters have painted about the story. See, they didn't have the language we have today, and these artists painted prolifically the stories of Jesus. And if you just sit and look at them, sometime for half an hour, three quarters of an hour, and just soak in it, you actually you actually hear things that Jesus is wanting to say to you. And I think this is an amazing piece. I came across this years ago. But this year, I came across a poem by a guy called Andrew Hudgens, written in 19, or at least published in 1997, uh, about uh, probably a couple of years after he wrote it. And it's, it's a poem that he wrote for that painting of Botticelli's. And the poem's called Carrying the Infinite. And he lingers in this space between Mary's question and when she said yes. So in that space, that's where that picture lingers and that's where the poet lingers. And for me, it gives a great weight and a richness between the, to the encounter between the angel and Mary. Now, I want you to stay focused there as best you can. It's the best I can do with that. While I read you the poem, so you stay up there, forget me. I'm not going to be looking into your eyes because they all should be up there. And this is how it goes. The angel has already said, be not afraid. He said the power of the Most High will darken you. Her eyes are downcast and half closed. And there's a long pause, a pause here of forever as the angel crowds her. 
She backs away, her left side pressed against the picture frame. He kneels. He's come in all, un all unearthly innocence to tell her of glory, not knowing, not remembering how terrible it is. And Botticelli gives her eternity to turn. Look out the doorway where on a far hill floats a castle and halfway across the river towards it juts a bridge not completed and neither is the touch angel to virgin. Both her hands held up, both elegant, one raised as if to say stop while the other hand, the right one, reaches towards his. And as it does, it parts her blue robe and reveals the concealed red of her inner garment to the red tiles of the floor and the red folds of the angel's robe. But her whole body pulls away. Only her head, already haloed, bows, acquiescing. And though she will, she's not yet said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord as Botticelli in his great pity lets her refuse, accept, refuse, and think again. I believe there's a real danger of us idealising and idolising Mary's consent. And when we do that, it distorts her humanity that she's one of us and had something to wrestle with here. And it keeps her at arm's length from our stories. And we say, oh, it's all right for Mary. And so we isolate ourselves from one of the greatest stories ever told. For better or for worse, I don't relate easily to a person who leaps headlong into obedience as they hear God. Oh, quite a few smiles out there. I'm not alone. I can relate, however, to the one who struggles, to the one whose yes is cautious and ambivalent. I hope the angel waited compassionately for her answer honouring all that was at stake in her freedom to accept or refuse him. Don't often think of that, do we? She could accept or refuse him. Watching, looking at that painting actually took me back to the moment when I sensed that I was hearing the voice of God saying to me, I want you in pastoral ministry. Not an easy voice to hear because I was in a job that was just amazing. I'd hit some real cutting-edge research in the Department of Ag and, and the world was my oyster. It was just an amazing space to be in the centre that I worked on. Where we three of us working there. Three of us had got on some cutting-edge stuff that was all released. In, into the farming community in the next couple of years and that's where I was when God came into this space and I sensed it was him I talked with Sharon about it I got some key advisors in it talked to friends about it there'd be moments where I'd be going oh yes and other moments when I was going no way 
This is where you've called me, God, into agriculture. And as I was processing it all, I remembered something that I'd said that I never, ever would go into pastoral ministry. My dad was a pastor and I'd seen a couple of nasty things that happened to him in pastoral ministry and I said, it's not for me. For these coward people in congregations like I saw, it's not for me. I'm not going to bear that cross. And so this wrestle went on. 18 months later, I said to God, I give up. It's your way. But I'm not liking it. I had lots of questions of how, how I was going to support three young kids. Uh, we were living on the smell of an oily rag then and uh, we were going to no income. I just said to God, my responsibility, it's all right, I'll care for them somehow. So it took me 18 months of wrestling to come to that decision of a yes. And God's never revoked that call. And I stand here today enjoying pastoral ministry more than I ever, ever had. Perhaps because it's only three days a week. <laughs> but challenges have been a plenty. Hard times. There's been some. But amazing people and amazing churches. 40 plus years of it. God's call had some tough stuff in it. There's no painted halos and all that kind of stuff. But it's had some amazing stuff. So Mary says, let it be. I'm the one. And the angel leaves her. It's all over. I want to ask Mary what it was like when the angel disappeared from her side and left her. 14-year-old, about to become pregnant. It's kind of when the angel left, it's the moment when prayer ends and the journey begins. Do you know what I mean? where the vision recedes and certainty wavers. It's the moment after the yes on the mountaintop and we get into the valley of the actual journey. I wonder what it would have been like if Gabriel had stuck around to erase her doubts and mostly silence her critics in the small community. But no... He departed, leaving the ongoing work of discernment and discipleship to Mary and Joseph. We'll bring him in. Her yes didn't signal the end of mystery. Mystery had only begun, and my yes to God has only brought me into the greatest mystery of all, the greatness of God. I get it less and less, but I trust it more and more because of the journey. There was a Christmas song written by a couple of guys called Body, Buddy Green and Mark Lowry, which is addressed to Mary and asked her what she knew when she said yes and as the angel left her. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? <laughs> Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? And it goes on in that vein, asking all these, Mary, did you know? We don't know. That's why I'd like to have her to dinner. 
My guess is that like us, she knew just enough of that journey to, to get on and get started. She knew just enough to get started. I doubt that she knew any of that. My guess is that the work of bearing God into the world involves ceaseless discovery and ongoing consent just as it does for us today. It's not yes once, but it's yes tomorrow and it's yes the next day. And when it's tough, it's even harder to say yes, but that's when we do it. My guess is that each trembling yes that Mary whispered into God's heart changed her heart and it changed our world. Today as I reread just these portions of the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth, I tremble to think that the fate of the world was resting on the responses of these two rural young kids, Mary and Joseph. How many times did Mary review the angel's words as she felt the Son of God kicking against the walls of her uterus? How many times did Joseph second-guess his own encounter with an angel his dream and just say, ha, it's just a dream. As he endured the hot shame of living among villagers who could plainly see the changing shape of his fiancée, a changing shape that he had not contributed to. Nine months of awkward explanations, the lingering scent of scandal, it seemed God arranged the most humiliating, disruptive circumstances possible for his entrance into the world. It was as if he wanted to avoid any charge of favoritism. I'm also impressed that when the Son of God became a human being, Jesus the teenager, the son of a carpenter, he played by the same harsh rules. Small towns do not treat kindly young boys who grow up with, with, with um, questionable paternity. As I said, we don't get that these days. What are we to make of this for us? It's this, that often a work of God comes with two edges. Great joy and great pain. It'd be interesting to talk to Tim about the joys and the pains of accepting the call to lead ministry through Toddler Jam. I'm having a coffee with him sometime in the next couple of weeks. That's the question I'll ask him. Had a coffee with Jess the other day and said, how did you get called into ministry with Fusion and the Baptist Church? What was it all about? How did God work? How did you get called to be a disciple of Jesus? Great joy and great pain in this call. And Mary and Joseph embraced both. They were the first people to accept Jesus on his terms, regardless of the cost to them personally. Huh? Their obedience became part of the saving work of God with us. God today still takes initiative in our lives. And when we respond with trust and obedience marvellous things happen. The Holy Spirit, the agent at the birth of Christ, has been and still is God's creative purpose person in our lives. So perhaps you and I need a fresh encounter with this Jesus this Christmas. 
Have we made room in the expected routines of this Christmas season to hear again through the Holy Spirit the disruptive call to a fresh, vital and loving obedience to Jesus? I can make it that broad. Will we slow down enough and will we hear God's call, disruptive call, to a loving obedience to him? Or will we just track on with God as an extra in our back pocket, hoping things don't go too bad in the next year? If you like, Joseph and Mary went out on a limb, an uncomfortable place as they faced the disruption in their lives. I'm sure they were happy making their wedding plans, anticipating the day and their future together. Surely God doesn't want us to go through this. We don't like change, do we? We don't even like change in our relationship with Jesus, but as I have preached here, that is what he is on about, to transform us from where we are now into the beautiful likeness of Jesus. Change is the name of the game of being a believer. Becoming more like Jesus. We don't like him disrupting our comfort zones. Perhaps Jesus has already been speaking to you this Christmas and you're hearing him call, I need you to go out on a limb And I want you to reconcile with that member of your family that you're at odds with. (laughs) Because Christmas shows all these things up. You've heard the call and you're wrestling with it. I say to you, if it's God, go yes and trust him. Perhaps he's saying to you, you've got plenty. Your pockets are bulging. Your homes are full. Your family's got everything. Look around for the stranger and the lonely person who's in need. Is, is God saying something like that to you this Christmas? You know, you've heard it and you've gone, oh, next Christmas. Just a little disruption in your family day. Two or three of you, as I was preaching through missions, said that that you really appreciated the simple way of just making friendship with neighbour. It was as if God had spoken to you. Have you said yes yet? And started the journey, not knowing where it's going to lead? That's the small disruptive voice of God, taking you out of your comfort zone, but taking you into blessing. I think we have the idea, maybe you're dealing with a larger call on your life that God's making. I want you to move away from family and friends and be there and ministering for me. Got the idea of the disruptive things that God does. Eventually you and I are left just like Mary and Joseph with a choice to the disruption. His will or our own. And perhaps the only thing worse than a venture into the unknown is the thought of disobedience to the master. Will we listen for the voice of God fresh this Christmas and into the new year and go out on a limb for him, obedient to his holy disruptions, his beckoning us to be part of the miracle of God with us 
That's what Mary was, wasn't she? Part of the miracle of God with us. We can join that as well. Let's pause and reflect. Spirit of God's at work out there. Just let him do the work in your life. Perhaps he's encouraging some of you who stepped out earlier this year to do ministry in this church and just saying, you've done well stepping out of your comfort zone. Thank you for being part of God with the people of Bentley. Perhaps you're just getting some encouragement from the Spirit of God. Perhaps you've seen just something new in the Christmas story that you want to ponder on for longer and longer. Perhaps you have seen for the first time that Mary is actually one of us and she was just going about her ordinary everyday life when God intervened. Perhaps you're sensing the Spirit of God saying, here's where I want you to go out on a limb. Maybe that's just to invite some friends or neighbours to the Christmas Eve festival and service here. If you sense God stirring your heart to do something that seems so simple, can I just say, in the struggle, give consent and be part of God with us. Amen.